Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. This week, Dan Wilson of Planar Compass joins me. They're in the midst of a Kickstarter for Planar Compass 3, and they're doing quite well. If you haven't backed it yet, do so right now. The time is nigh. For this episode, we discuss zines, publishing, and a variety of other topics. It is time to sail the seas of the ether. Sisters and brothers, it is time to get rambling. Hello, Dan. Hi, Jeff. Well, you guys uh, are rocking it with the Planar Compass 3. (laughs) Rocking it. But 10, you're at 10 grand. I didn't check it. You're like nine something earlier today, I think. Yeah, we just, I think we just went over 10 a little bit ago. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's quite an achievement for for our hobby to to hit those kinds of numbers. And and um, I think what well, I want to say what uh, what tipped me off was you had your your um, whatever they call that landing page like two or three weeks before it started. And, uh, and my goodness, it's like you're organized. <laughs> and I'm looking yeah. at my life. I'm like. I'm in shambles. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one of those things where we've been working on this for a long time. Well, and that's, the, that's the advantage of, of a series. You know, like when you're working on a series, you kind of know like three is next. <laughs> when you're doing yeah. random things, that's a little different, you know? Yeah, but still, I mean, uh, the there's quite a bit in Planner Compass 2. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not sure content wise how it's going to compare. Three will compare to two. I'm I'm hoping it to be a little bit smaller. I felt that three was um, a, a a little over the top, but it was one of those things where we we uh, we had a little we had a lot of trouble pruning. <laughs> but and then I felt like you know if we can make it saddle stitch, if we pull it off, I'm okay with it because I really just I really dislike perfect binding for yeah. it's okay for player reference stuff but for something for a referee nobody wants to deal with that when they're when they're trying to gm and they're trying to keep the book open so i'm really adamant about either perfect binding or whatever proper book binding is i don't know what it's called but when it has like you know um thread binding if I, if we were to go up to like a, a hardbound book oh, that's right. the thing I would want you know yeah because they'll take like a group of like i don't know like four sheets of paper or eight sheets of paper or whatever it is folded in half yeah. and those are stitched and they then they stitch all those together somehow or glue exactly. it together yeah similar it works very similar i feel like the end effect is very similar to saddle stitch where um and it's weird because you know when you come into this i feel like you would assume that saddle stitch is is cheaper yeah <laughs> you know because it's to an outsider it seems like it's it's like the i don't know like the more crude method, but it's, it, I find it to be much nicer than perfect bound personally. Um, but it's all taste. Well, I think there's a couple things going on. I mean, there's, I think there's some downsides to it, but I think the upsides is that uh, it, it's more robust. You, you, you mm-hmm. don't have the breakage like you do with perfect bound. Yeah. And I think the perfect bound, you're also, you're kind of losing on your margins uh, yep. in the inside. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the commitment was we wanted to keep it saddle stitch. We, we got, we squat, we squeezed it in. We, we went down. It ended up being the same paperweight 
is one, it turns out. I didn't realize that because when I was playing around with it, Mixum has changed their default now. They went up from 70 to 80 as the default. So this whole time I was hemming and hawing about having to go down in paperweight. And then I went back and looked and I said, oh, we did 70 for the first one. So that's fine. And then, not, and then when I got it, I was like, oh, 70 is perfectly thick for something of this nature. So I, I wasn't as worried about, but I was worried about making it too thin in order to make it bindable, you know? Well, These are I things do. that people like us worry about. Well, because we don't know, right? It's right. kind of like, it's like you buy a computer. It's like, do I need that extra whatever core? Do I need the extra mm -hmm. so much of video? Or like, I don't know. And you don't, mm -hmm. you hate to go in, you hate to go in and say, you know, if I just would have spent another $150, my computer would have been perfect. Yeah. But, and again, you may be overspending by $300 because it's got features you don't, will never use. So right. it's hard to know for those of us that aren't like, you know, in, involved. Because mm -hmm. um, I'm in a situation where I, I just with complete um, abandon just said, you know what, fan of the fly guy, I'm just going to take it wherever it goes. And then, and then once the page starts, page count started racking up i'm like uh that was not a good idea because now i'm i'm in a situation <laughs> what are you up to uh a hundred pages all right <laughs> so that's a book book now well i think i can do it i yeah. think i found some i found some people that can do it i just don't know and this is where it's definitely not mix them i mean the, the option nope. was to either try and make this work so because I never do anything straightforward and everything's just a, is a mess, I, um, so I, I guess I'll just go ahead and go through down this route. So I yeah. did find a printer who could print like a hundred, say 130, whatever, 32 pages, really? but it had to be eight and a half by 11. Okay. Then I found another printer. They can, they can print more pages. Uh, but they're not limited to eight and a half by 11. Okay. And then, be, uh, or I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Cause it folded in half. I'm just trying to imagine it closing. Cause already ours like is difficult to close. I can't even imagine what a hundred page. Well, I imagine it's going like. to be like a fan fold and it's just going to stand on the table like a cylinder. <laughs> That's a whole new presentation type you could lean into. Yeah, it just you shoots know? out of the package when they open it, just proof, you know. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so that's, that's interesting. So I did well, find it. If you if you pull it off, let me know. I'm curious. Well, the reason I I, I tricked me off is I talked was talking to Trevor, and he's like, Yeah, those old um Whatever their Earl, Earl Otis ones were, were higher page count than like, mm -hmm. then I gave him a call and had him start taking measurements on it. And then he said, well, the page count's actually less, but anyhow, I found another printer in Ann Arbor, Michigan, who I think, I think they might be able to, to do me right. We'll see. Um, but I think I may go comic book size. Hmm. So then it's like, cause eight and a half by 11 is too big. Eight and a half by five and a half is too small because I want some. I want more room. Mm -hmm. I thought if I would go to, um, <laughs> I thought if I go to comic book size, which is something goofy like six and five eighths by ten and an eight. I can't remember. 
I thought, well, that will give me more room and I'll take less pages. But then once I started to look at the layouts, like kind of like having those extra margins. So <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's, it's one of those things like I've, I've grown to really like uh, margins. I feel like when I started off, I would, I would, and I was informed by the OSR sensibility before this, which was like use every centimeter, every millimeter of the page. And yeah. you see the OSR stuff from like the early 2010s where it would be like, there would literally be like the lowest margin they could put. Right. <laughs> but it, all, it ends up becoming difficult for the eye to parse, I think. I've really been a convert to white space in the last two years now that I'm engaged in it, you know? Well, I mean, in a, I mean, truly, you know, this stuff is all fan stuff. And I think we mm -hmm. as fans are becoming more um, educated. But in the early on, I mean, we, you know, we didn't right. know, you know. Yeah, there was very few people back then, I think, that were, had any sort of publishing background. And now I think there's a lot more people who are in publishing or publishing adjacent. And they're in, they're informing the scene both literally and also by example and so that's why i think there's been a real transformation in the last five years in terms of sensibilities and quality you know yeah and i think even with uh stuff like affinity designer now it's mm -hmm. it's more affordable it, you have to put the time in to learn it but it's it's yeah. definitely the 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 bar gets lowered mm -hmm. for being able to produce something that's high quality absolutely yeah, it's 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 pretty astounding. So you, I think, so you're, I think when this drops be Saturday, I think you'll have another day or two. Is it on Monday you're ending? I think I think Tuesday morning Tuesday. it ends. Oh, okay. I think I can never figure it out because I set the day. I don't do the date. I do number of days. Oh. And then, I, <laughs> and then it, but then I think Kickstarter tells you the day. I don't really pay attention honestly. Once I get it, once it starts, I'm like so uh done <laughs> by the time i get to that point that i almost don't even pay attention anymore i mean obviously i i i go through the emotional roller coaster that we all do um, <laughs> yeah because right now we're in the plateau and even when you're successful even when you're very like i would consider us by zine qualities to be very successful the plateau still sucks like it's like oh yeah you know we still have stuff we want to do we there's people we want to add to the team and it's still up in the air when you're in the plateau. Um, I, I have to be sensitive to the fact that there's other people um, who aren't even funded, you know, and so it, it's kind of a shitty thing to complain about on my behalf, but I still yeah. feel it, you know. Well, so what I'll say too is, you know, as you start adding team members, mm -hmm. Uh, those higher numbers, even if you look like ten thousand dollars, like you guys are just gonna have cash. You're gonna right. you're gonna the bank. But when it all said and done, when you start paying for all the shipping, the mm -hmm. printing, and the people, the editing, because you did and the art, because you're funding art, uses to fund art. Yeah, you know, it, it's not a. Yeah, you're not. <laughs> you're, why yeah. should I let you quit your job to do this? <laughs> nope, nope. Yeah, especially when shipping's a part of. The calculus because then now especially with the rise in shipping you know and that 
that brings international shipping, which is almost a whole different discussion, but that really inflates the numbers tremendously, even if it's just media mail, because media mail over 200 people adds up, that's $500, you know, and if it's even bigger, if it's an even larger number of people, you know, it's more than that. And once you get international, um, 20, 30, $40, yeah. multiple people of that, that adds up and Kickstarter just counts that as the total. So people see exactly. that and they think, oh, you got 10 grand <laughs> in the bank. Nah, almost a thousand of that, if not more is shipping, that's gone. Printing costs, gone. You know what I mean? Kickstarter yeah. fees, gone. Sales tax, people don't know going in. If this is your first one, got accounting for sales tax. There's very few states in the US that don't collect sales tax. And you still owe it, even if you're not a store or have no background in sales. They don't care. Right. <laughs> you owe it. So, yeah, you, it ends up, I think last year, we had something like 14000 for the Kickstarter. And I think we ended up with like 1000 left over once it was all done. Paid everyone, printed, shipped, you know, reshipped the stuff that was lost. Part of it was like shipping went up last year between the Kickstarter and fulfillment and international shipping in particular. Um, so that really ate into things. But that's so you're doing, you're still doing an international then. Sorry, you're still doing international. We offered it, and I kind of offered it in in the expectation that nobody would take it, and people still are. But it's definitely different than last year. We're still have people complaining, like they don't. There, people still don't believe us. And I want to be like, I, I have to be diplomatic because I'm representing seven other people in this project. Right. So I can't just, if it was just me, I'd be very punk rock and, and, and give them the middle <laughs> finger, but I can't do that. That's not right. So I, but if, if, if it wasn't just me, I would just drop shipping calculators and the weight and say, figure it out and tell me if I'm wrong, because this is my third time doing it. I don't think I'm wrong. And I'm working with a fulfillment person. I don't think we're both wrong, but hey, maybe we're missing something. Maybe shipping to china is actually four dollars and i didn't know yeah maybe <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. what, what what i i don't find that unbelievable i find shipping to canada unbelievable that's what i find oh it's killing us and it's killing us right now too because we're not even in a canadian store right now and we've always had a relationship with canadian stores but they can't even afford to buy our zines now we have pricey zines i'll say that up front um, we, we charge in the higher end for our zines because they're full color and they're big and we put a lot of time and energy into them. But once you factor in shipping and currency conversions, I've had two stores tell me we can't afford to stock it. Like we can't, it's the math is impossible. Yeah, I can't I blame think, them. I can't get mad at that. That's fair. I think normally what I understand as far as distribution for RPGs, I think the company who publishes gets 40, the distributor gets 20 and the right. store gets 40. So once you start cutting into, you know, when they put stuff on sale, yep. it's, it's that, it's that 40% that's they're getting cut into very significantly. Yeah. It becomes almost a guaranteed loss for them unless they're selling it exactly at MSRP or higher. And that's hard to do a lot of times. So, I mean, it just stinks. I've been talking to people about this a lot. Like if I had more time in energy, I would honestly try and set up like, some kind of distribution co-op, at least for Canada, but certainly I also, I think for the, EQ, the uh, UK and the EU mainland, 
it would be so great if there was like three or four people or businesses that would be like, yeah, we'll receive the product, we'll distribute it. Mixum UK exists, so that covers uh, UK. Mixum Canada exists, so that covers Canada. In fact, half of our stuff comes from Canada in the first place. So if I just had someone to receive it in Canada, that would solve the problem. But the problem is, is that 99% of us are operating out of our homes or our apartments or whatever. So even if you're running a store, you're carrying five to 10 copies of a zine most of the time. There's very few stores that are like Exalted Funeral that have true inventories with the warehouse. Most of them are people operating and they've got a shelf and they've got five copies of this scene, 10 copies of this scene, and they can't right. afford, they don't have the space to do right. fulfillment for other people. You know, Some of them do out of the kindness of their hearts, but it's not like, you know, it's feasible, I think. But if, if, if we could find a way to coordinate that and cover different parts of the globe, that would be, I think, a tremendous help. But I think it would also be a, a logistical I don't want to say a nightmare, but definitely a conundrum to solve how that would so all work. What for, so for foreign, by foreign, I mean anything not in the U.S., like what's the yeah. breakdown for um, your sales uh, for your Kickstarter? Is it, is like, to me, what I, what I find, for instance, when I look at the, my podcast, yeah, the numbers, the numbers are, you know, obviously the U.S. next highest is, is the U.K. Mm-hmm. But Canada's like really low. So mm-hmm. I like, I just kind of curious how, how the uh, percentages break down for international. Like what, where is your largest international uh, group? I would say in the past, it was probably Canada. We used to have a lot of um, support out of Canada. And it's, I don't think it's that we're <laughs> suddenly unpopular with Canadians. I just think that the metrics have changed a lot in the last year, a lot. Um, and I don't blame anybody. Like I don't want to pay 15 to $20 of shipping on a 15 to $18 zine. That makes no sense. I wouldn't because do it. Because we're, 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 we're uh, uh, Americans in uh, the United States, right? <laughs> we're, everybody, else, everybody else in the world is used to this. We're like, no That's way. True. <laughs> That's, I, that could be a part of it. But I do, I do have people who come at me and say like, why is this so much higher than last year? And I'm like, well, you know, this and this, I mean, the worst one was from the first year to the second year. Cause the first year we didn't know what we were doing and we were just lucky that we didn't have a tremendous number of backers. Like we hit the right amount that it was successful, but we didn't get hosed on shipping, but we probably would have gotten hosed because I was, didn't know what I was doing at all. I didn't, I was doing fulfillment myself. So I didn't know what packing, packaging materials to get i didn't know what rate of shipping to buy or anything you know and when you're when you've never done anything like that before and it's like you're trying to figure all this out in a short period of time two weeks to four weeks right because i feel like that's the way it is with a lot of people when their first zine quest or zine month or whatever is like you're probably not thinking about it six months in advance you probably find out about it right before it starts or when it starts and you already have maybe something and then you you're trying to get it all together right it is and it, it's it hard to difficult. figure out shipping when in those circumstances and i think uh you know i've i got turned on to uh pirate ship mm-hmm. which That's what we used. yeah 
It's great. And they have it's fantastic customer service too. If you ever, if something goes wrong, they have the best customer service. What did you have go wrong? Uh, we had a shipment to the UK that was like, I don't know what happened, but it looked as if the box had been opened. Much of the packing material disappeared and then it had been resealed again. And in the process, the scenes were just damaged beyond the point oh. that the store was willing to sell them. Um, and I was like, that's fair. I mean, I don't expect you to sell like damaged zines even at a discount because nobody who wants to buy, you know, <laughs> half price zines that have defects um, when they're already like kind of entry level RPG things to begin with. But um, Pirate Ship was awesome because you didn't, even though it was UPS, I didn't deal with UPS. I dealt with Pirate Ship and they took care of everything. I just sent up the pictures and the tracking number and they just took care of it. And they gave us a credit, which we continue to use them. So the credit works for us. Like, that's fine. So. Yeah, it's really pretty astounding. I mean, I've, I've never, the only stuff I've done has been locally, but as far as I, I wish Kickstarter the implementation was better. I wish they could export things. I think they do a USPS uh, yeah. dump. I haven't tried. Yeah. Did they try that? I can't remember. It it worked fine. I think I ended up having to play around on a spreadsheet to get it to work right. But but once I did, it, it wasn't, wasn't too bad. I've heard that you can go directly from Kickstarter into Pirate Ship. I haven't done it because we've been using Spearwitch for fulfillment. So I have no idea if that's what he does or if he has to do some middle work, but I've heard people do that. So that might be possible. Well, I know that was, if I recall correctly, that was on the survey from Kickstarter was, hey, what options and things would you like to see? Mm -hmm. Remember, did you get that survey? No. If I did, I didn't pay attention. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Well, it's just apparently if you're too successful, they don't bother giving you a survey. So, uh, uh, <laughs> or so anyway. enough nasty things about them that they're not interested in what I have to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they check hashtags. <laughs> On the verge of getting blacklisted. <laughs> but uh, no, they they uh, put a survey for things you'd like people would like to see, and so uh -huh. you, you can rate it. So that was one of the things I think, if I recall correctly, was something along those lines. Maybe not. Mm. Yeah, I've slept since then. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see if they actually implement any suggestions because they don't seem to change. Like, I feel like the interface hasn't changed in the two years that I've been doing it. And I was just what? saying, Sarah, on launch day, it was like, this page editor pisses me off. And this is only our third time. I can't imagine if this is someone's 10th time and the yeah. interface hasn't changed, <laughs> like how mad I would be. Well, at least they they made the the button more obvious to launch. Before, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. The amount of times I've seen someone say I accidentally launched, and I just like, oh my god. Yeah, you know, you oh. know, they had to hear hear about this thing hundreds of times. It's like that's one of the easiest things to fix. Even if they were to put a bright red color on it or arrow, something on text to tell you, you know, like. Don't touch us because this is the, you know, this is the launch button. Yeah. Ugh. Wild. So you guys are, you've got the countdown. So, uh -huh. so you have, uh, you had stretch goals uh, yeah. and you're, you're slowly 
ticking away through those. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's another one I need to get uh, Zach Goins to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is that he talks about using the stretch goals for creating a narrative ride yeah. for it's like you know it's kind of like it takes a lot of thought <laughs> yeah i don't have i don't have the bandwidth for that honestly like i'm just not a natural hype man to begin with so i don't like a lot of aspects of kickstarter it's just the only way i've seen so far that i can pay artists and people a fair price for their labor like if i raise three hundred dollars how am i going to pay somebody you know what i mean and that like that's what it looks like outside it's obviously it's changing a lot and people are doing the hard work that i that we haven't done yet like we tried to do itch funding this past spring and it didn't really go great um but i don't think that's necessarily an indictment of itch as to say is that it Kickstarter does a lot of work for you. And that's why people like me and you and others can come in on their first time and be successful. Right. Because Kickstarter is going to get you eyeballs that other websites just aren't. Um, and that's not necessarily a justification for Kickstarter's existence. It's just a reality. Um, I'm, but I don't like aspects of Kickstarter. I don't really like the stretch goals. The reason we do the stretch goals is so that it's not all or nothing. I know the point of Kickstarter is to be all or nothing, but I feel like with a zine, you know, 50% original art is a is better than no zine at all. So I'd rather just pay someone a fair wage um, and do 50% of the art original and then fill it in with public domain or something. Um, that's why we do the stretch goals. All of our stretch goals are just our actual, like almost the content modular. And I know people dislike that because they feel like the actual content shouldn't be stretch goals, but it's the only way I feel comfortable doing it because I'm afraid to put up like a $15,000 budget for a zine. <laughs> <laughs> but that's actually, if you have an eight person team, that's what it costs. Like that's, yeah. That's what it is. I know it's just a zine, but, and I guess we should scale back our expectations, but this is what we want to do. You know, Th- this year we have something that's truly like not actually required for the zine, which is we have Loot the Body doing an album. Um, but so that's, that's a true stretch goal in, the, in like the spirit of what a stretch goal is. Yeah. No, so it's, 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 it's just content. And it, I don't, I mean, we use it to try and, um, you know, build hype, but we don't use it in the same way that people kind of um, use it to make it more exciting or more enticing. Like, I don't think most people are like, oh, yeah, it's getting an editor. Now, now I'm getting it. Like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? I saw saw the editor. I was like, does that mean it doesn't get edited? But I'm not, I know it does. (laughs) You're just saying we're just going to hire a person to now do a layer of editing yeah yeah exactly um yeah in in many ways we treat the stretch goals the way people actually do itch funding which is that you have series of goals like our initial goal is just the first of a series of goals um 
That's and that's the way that's the way it's it has worked for us. And it, so far it's working for us on this one. So I think we'll what see. I'm going to do with my next one, I don't know if I am, but I think I need about three, I probably need about probably make it be about maybe 3,500 to break even. Mm-hmm. I, I need to, I need to redo the math. So I may do is just set the funding at, I think like you guys set yours at 600, I believe your minimum yeah. rights set mine pretty low. So really if it were to fund yours was to fund at 600, you lost money, right? Yeah. I mean, at that point we've already lost money because like we pay for the cover out of pocket. We pay for other things out of pocket. We paid for, we always pay for the writing. Um, up front because I feel like writers shouldn't the writing's necessary the, the writing is the most is the necessary thing the art is necessary but you can function with a zine without the art the writing there's no, well <laughs> there's no there's no zine without the writing so I feel like the writers right. should be made before the Kickstarter is my point of view um we it's just Sarah and I don't get paid because we're planar compass so we're the last ones to get paid but um, yeah, so I think, I mean, it's if we were to do 600, I don't know that we would lose money. It would just be a far more scaled back zine aesthetically. Because um, really that's what all that funding is. Almost most of it is aesthetics. It's art and layout. So, so this you, would be more- Do you pay for proof zine. copies or do you just go to once it's, or do you just soft proof it? Um. We do it different every time. So the first one, there was no editor. So I kind of, I just laid it out myself. And then we put out several beta versions to the backers, yeah. which I no longer do because it didn't garner any kind of reaction. So I don't know if people liked it or didn't like it. Yeah. or what. I, I've Now that I've been in it longer and I've backed more things, I find that personally and i think this is the case with a lot of people and this is why it got the reaction it did is that it's all noise until the final product is in your hands right um so i think people just aren't interested in unfinished versions i think the small amount of people are but most people are just going to wait until you say this is it this is the final version no but i mean like far i mean as far as proof copies like do you uh when you Uh, you order print yeah yeah. Do you have a, do you yes. have a physical copy in hand to check for mistakes or do you rely on the, because if you do right there is $70 or better yeah. with, with that well, run. So usually right. the proof copy is more about if it works in print, then we're usually not looking for proof editing at that point. Hopefully. I mean, the but first one went to backers with a ton of errors because we edited it ourselves and you can't do that. No, um, I think the second one did a lot better because Jared, we edited it and then Jared did uh, the copy edit and then it went to layout and then we looked it over again as a team and then Jared did a proof edit. So it went through a lot more than the first one did. So hopefully by the time we're ordering proofs, that's more about is the layout working with the printing? Um, what's it look like when it's... Right. You know, I just say right there's seventy dollars, you know, with with, or more with shipping, you know. Especially if you're weighing options like this one, we got it printed because it was so big. We got printed in different ways, so we got a perfect bound version, and we got a saddle stitch version, and we got different page coatings. Um, 
just because we were like, if we're going to, at this point, with this amount of money, it better be the exact version we want. You so, know? so you're already now a couple hundred dollars in just with that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I'm just saying that $600, it's not, it's not too far off to, I mean, that's any tip quick. So yeah, yeah. I was thinking about doing, because if I get less than say 3,200 or 3,500, I will technically lose money. And I thought about the, for this, for this, the, oh. For the stretch goals would be uh, now I get paid back for having paid the artist. Now I get paid back because I'm going right. to pay everybody up front. <laughs> like, and then at the like four thousand dollar goal, it's like, hey, I broke even. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's a valid. I've always thought about putting up a final stretch goal. This is Dan and Sarah get paid because <laughs> we've yet to actually take a dollar out of this thing in two years. Um, which, I mean, I think we're, we're middle of the road successful. So I think that if that's, if you're, li I'm not trying to discourage people, but I want, I want you all, if you're listening to, um, to weigh your expectations going into this, this is, this is not a side gig, which is going to pay dividends in the first couple of years, unless you can afford to do it full time right up front but if you're well, doing this part-time you should expect i think a couple years where you're getting beer money at best there are people who know how to do it right like tom wilson uh he's he kind of has dialed in mm -hmm. he's the only person he uses stock art mm -hmm. and and uh he doesn't go for and he does i think pod from uh from drive through yeah and so he, you know he actually if you look at percentages he actually does fairly well you know yep. as far as me look on the outside um, but i uh, think that's the problem is that because of what we produce the margins are very thin um, yeah. even, no matter how much we mark it up it just is like like if you if you do 60 pages of full color even just printing 60 pages of full color is more expensive than 40 pages of black and white you know yeah. it's stuff like that and it adds up at scale um so and i'm not like I, i'm all I, it's all good to me because to me this is just like a high stakes hobby <laughs> you know some people have woodworking and some people have you know rifle shooting and i i make the zines uh, I would like to maybe turn it into something more someday, but it's it's not in the cards at the moment. Um, but like I said, the, yeah, I think I think as you said, if you can do it from a calculated business way, and I don't want to say that in a, as a slight because it's not. I think you can be very creative with heavy constraints, but if you're willing to adopt those constraints, absolutely. Yeah, I think you can do it. Um, I mean, there's like, there's a lot of guys that are, you know, there's not a ton of money on drive through, but if you, they do well on drive through and they've got other things going on, so they've diversified the the income stream, so to speak. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with Kickstarter because if Kickstarter really does, kind of, lose the the RPG community or become taboo in the RPG community. That's it. I mean, Kickstarter is such a huge part of people's income in this, in, in the indie field, at least. Um, and I would say probably other than Hasbro in the mainstream field, 
Um, Hasbro is probably the only company that doesn't need Kickstarter whatsoever. Right. Everyone else is using Kickstarter to massively pad the numbers. I think Charlie Ferguson, who runs Zine, no, not Charlie, Ian Usum, did a really brave, I think, transparency blog post where he broke down all of his numbers. Oh, yeah. And and something like at least, I can't remember the numbers, but Kickstarter was at least a quarter of the pie, at least. So imagining a quarter of, of your money disappearing that's hard, <laughs> you know, but it also it's, I think it's a lesson again in diversifying. Like so many of us, we are reliant on a single printer and a single crowd for crowdfunding source or whatever. And if you've got one thing that's a part of your model and you need that thing, you're in a lot of trouble. Right. You really are, you know? Right. Cause I mean, you even think about things like, you know, shipping and things like that costs or paper costs or whatever. It's like, you know, you know, I think we're pretty fortunate at this moment. It seems like costs are going up and it does, I think, appear, I don't know, you know, that customers are willing to uh, pay more at this point. But I think to an extent. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's I think it's there's going to I think the other shoe is going to drop with inflation, unfortunately, because if groceries go up 30 percent, are people going to buy? ten dollar zines i don't know i don't know you know yeah i think what seven percent for 2021 yeah so i mean i i I don't think i don't think people are totally i think i think obviously working class people are feeling that immediately but i don't think middle class people are totally feeling that yet so i feel like that shoe's going to drop in the next year um so and again, it's like, how do we adapt to that? Do we go all digital? Do we offer print and just had you know do it and try and do it in a more in a safer way? Like I don't, I know a lot of people do this. They'll they'll do a big old print run and hope they sell it. I don't do that. I sell it to no. the stores first, and it, you know it's not great because they have to wait around for it. But I'm not ordering copies that I know are going to sit around. Like I I did this time. Because I could kind of look at like what happened with the first issue. Um, and so we're still sitting on some copies, but it's not like when people, you know, and this is not quite a thing that seems it's more like a book thing, but it's not like when people mortgage a house and then they have a garage full of right G books, you know. Um, I think now more than ever, you people really need to gauge their print runs and stuff like that because it does add up. You know, even a even a three hundred dollar print run matters. You know, yeah. And I think the thing is, I mean, for me, it's like if you if you if if Kickstars are something you plan to keep doing, mm-hmm. uh, then I think having extra copies can pay off if people are yeah. willing to buy those. But yeah, you got to be. But if you don't, if you're not going to keep doing the Kickstarters you're going to run the same situation where you have inventory and mm-hmm. the inventory may be all your profits. You have to sell those off before you actually make money sometimes. Yep. That's, that's kind of where I'm at with, uh, with uh, during the Madlands, I've got about 30 copies. So once I sell all those, I'll, I'll do okay. That's all the profit I got is in physical copies at the moment, mm-hmm. which is fine. I didn't lose any money, but uh, 
Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's, but that's a whole thing. Cause once you do your print run, it's like, it's fairly cheap. It, each additional copy is cheaper. That's the temptation. Yes. But yeah, it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's the temptation. Yes. <laughs> but you're taking out all the margins that you just made to, to, to do that. It's a gamble. And so mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's not easy. Um, I, and I think that's just it. I think if you're going to keep, I think for you, it, it's, it's gotta be more of an incentive to do overruns just because you're planning on a series of, yeah. of the same thing. Yeah. And it becomes, I think, I mean, this is only our third one, but I think it becomes more desirable the more there are of something, you know, I know like, um, so like kind of like when a TV show has four seasons, it's a little bit more interesting to get into sometimes than something that's like half a season. Even though, a even though the shorter thing might be more, might be easier to get through. Yeah. <laughs> but what if it's eight seasons? Do you say, well, do I even yeah. want to do that? That would be good. <laughs> <laughs> if I If it's eight seasons and I don't like the first four episodes, I'm probably dropping it. Well, but the thing is, sometimes you think, well, do I want to invest eight episodes? Like I, I've never watched the blacklist until recently. And we, you know, it's like eight seasons. And uh, so we ended up watching it. It was, it was good, but uh, it was, uh, but my wife also binge watches. So she gets hooked. It's it, it, she can go, I don't want to say out of control, but she can kind of go out of control. So, if, yeah. you know, watching all the Downton Abbeys or whatever it may be. is right. uh, <laughs> Yeah. I'm definitely a binge watcher for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm like a binge consumer of anything. So if I find a book I like, I'll probably sit until I finish it. If I can, <laughs> that's wow. just my nature. I, I tend to get immersed. I don't get in things. Um, that's how I function. Yeah. And it's, it's good as long as you know, when, when you, you can do it, when you can't do it. <laughs> So my wife's been watching these K dramas. Um, have you seen any of the K dramas? No. Uh, so Netflix has a bunch of these. So it's, it's South Korea puts out these these shows. Okay. And they're actually, I think, I think in general, I'm just gonna make a general blanket statement. I think their shows are probably in a lot of ways better than the U.S. shows, mm -hmm. and they do things from a different angle. But anyway, um, they're generally uh, sixteen shows to a season mm -hmm. so my wife's like oh we're, we're at the last you know i'm just going to stay up and watch the last episode or two i'll go to bed and then find out there wasn't 16 episodes in the season this one had 18 oh. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> one in the morning she's lying to bed like i don't know what i was thinking <laughs> yeah so anyway no, yeah no. i just uh it, it's it'd be interesting to know you know if the if this uh you know i think whenever we're involved in something that's kind of going big we don't know if it's sustainable or mm -hmm. is this a bubble yeah you know the whole zine thing seems like it's a very healthy thing that will go on forever but it's hard to know uh, yeah i don't know it's it's certainly been a, a this year i think it's going to be a test um i would say that Although I think Zemo is way better than ZineQuest in a lot of ways, it's definitely been smaller financially. I think, um, I, I like. I think I don't remember what the number was total dollars for last year, but it was something like a million dollars or whatever. And I just don't 
I mean, I haven't sat down and done the math, but I don't think the numbers are there. And I'm, that's not necessarily a, a horrible thing, but um, it might, maybe that's the recalibration we need in order to change with what's coming economically you know, in terms of cost of printing and shipping and people's, um, you know, expendable cash. Maybe we, maybe we've been living in a bubble and need to get a little bit of cold water. Um, but I think, I think it's a couple things. It's, it's the shift away from Kickstarter. Kickstarter not supporting us in this time whatsoever. Um, and the frag, fragmentization. Well, I think COVID played a lot in last year's success. Yeah, I think so. Right, because at that point, there wasn't really, the vaccine was kind of out, but it really wasn't much of a thing and we there at that point we we there, we didn't know it could have been another year of being inside yeah people are a little stir crazy and this was probably you know something enjoyable and in a, in a sea of just of 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 the mire of just well, i don't say despair but it was just it was just such a slog that everybody was going yeah. through i think i think that definitely fed it. i know i i went i didn't go like crazy crazy but it's just afterwards i'm like what was I thinking? <laughs> was like, yeah. There was a lot yeah. of cool zines last year, though. There's a lot of great ones this year. That's the thing. And I don't know. I feel like the thing about Zine Quest is it would bring in a ton of people who weren't necessarily zine scene insiders. They weren't necessarily on the zine Facebook group or on Twitter yeah. or whatever. Like they were just getting pulled in because they were adjacent i don't know if that's happening as much this year because i don't because of all the various things going on um and i don't want to paint that in a, i'm not trying to paint zemo in a negative white because i i think it's fantastic i think it's wonderful that a grassroots movement has come up and it's focused on empowering people um in a way that zinquest never was like zinquest was like yeah anyone can do it here's the standards but good luck Whereas Zemo is like they're having workshops and guides yeah. are put up and all this stuff has has made it way more accessible. That's beautiful to me. I think that's that's been so good. And there's I think a lot of if Zemo keeps going and I I think it will and I hope it does. I think a lot of really amazing people are going to come into this scene that wouldn't have otherwise because they're making it way more accessible yeah was what i found difficult was i first got on i think there's a, a a wave of us that came in and there's some people are like like wait a minute <laughs> you guys are like what are you doing <laughs> like like kind of we were we we're kind of like uh like colonialists going in and just like uh, you know and, and, and i don't know how far that went but the other thing is i just didn't have i just didn't have the bandwidth to actually properly go through what was going on with zemo this month so you so, I mean like going into the discord or yeah what? i mean i just didn't okay. i there was no bandwidth i i ran okay. i ran completely completely it was uh, yeah with it was my mom and stepdad i was yeah you know, that's fair. It, it was great well it really was just work going yeah. to the nursing home coming back home and either just going to bed earlier watching something going to bed so mm -hmm. i completely kind of i don't say i'm plugged but it just it was just too much so but i think being discord yeah. 
I think Discord does have a, a healthy community, but there's a lot of people that don't like Discord, and I find it can be very chaotic, and I have a hard time sometimes. Yeah, I'm not a that. huge Discord person, which is ironic because I'm I always push our Discord. Um, but yeah, with the big <laughs> Discords, I've I've even backed away from the OSE Discord, not intentionally, I think subconsciously, because that's grown so tremendously, which is great. But back when I got on it, it was it was much smaller and I felt like I knew everybody. And now I hop in and I don't know anybody. I mean, I know I recognize like three people, but it's it's just very different. And I and the other thing with Discord, especially with something that's like a, a subject Discord is and this is true of all things, but you, you start to see the same conversations crop up over and over again. And like, I just don't want to talk about ascending versus descending AC anymore. Like <laughs> I cared about that like three years ago. And I'm sure that other people like you stopped caring about it 20 years ago. You know what yeah, I mean? Like right. for everyone, these are older or newer conversations, but, and, and I encourage people coming in and playing old school games for the first time to have those conversations. I just am not interested in them anymore. Um, yeah, I'm gonna on a comment on Facebook. There's a, a group called uh, Comic Book Swipes. Yeah, are are you on that? No. Oh, it's great. So what they'll do is they'll people are swiping or doing homages all the time, but but still the same stuff every so many months. Like yeah. people are publishing like it's the first time, yeah, but it gets cycles through every few months. There's yeah. there's a you know whatever it may be, whether it's, it could even be not just comic books. It could just be George Lucas's scene swiping from, uh, from um, Valerian. Okay. You know, stuff like that. Just yeah. like, yeah, he I'll ripped off scene from off. scene on a lot of that stuff. It's just kind of crazy, but. That's like, it sounds very much up my alley. So. Oh, oh comic book swipes. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's good. I'll, I'll send you a link, but occasionally yeah. they'll, they'll get a little crazy, but uh, it's, it's just kind of fun just to see how much people use other people's work. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes very, some are just homages, but you know, it's, it's, it's certain poses also you'll see like the, I think there's a one where it's Superman holding Supergirl and she's dying and he's crying. And yeah. then and it's almost like a Pieta kind of thing, but then they'll show all the kind of covers that are just homages of that same, you know, that same thing. It's, it's kind of right. Cute. Yeah. But but yeah, I guess OSC. I'll take the I'll take this as a bridge because you're gonna you're going to uh, you're going to illuminate me. So I've yeah, we're gonna we're gonna sort this out tonight, Jeff. Okay, because this I, I I will I will uh, concede that it is confusing. It is so confusing <laughs> that there is a graphic on the Necrotic Gnome website that attempts to. At least it used to be there. It used to show it, you. There is a graphic, but it still doesn't fit what I've got. Okay. So, all right. So, there's so two Before lines. you go any further, before you go any further. All right. Go ahead. I'm just going to describe to everybody. So, I've got an old school essentials, classic fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I'm for the people at home that's got, or has got the video, it's the rules tome. And it shows the wizard yeah. with a little imp on his shoulder. And he's looking to a crystal ball. Okay. And that's the book called the rules tome. Okay. Okay. Now I so, want to buy what goes with this. Okay. All right. So I will say this first off the bat, uh, to add to the fun, Gavin changes the picture every time he does a print run. Yeah. That's, so, that, yeah. That's great. 
you're, you're making my argument. <laughs> like, what was he thinking? I, I don't know. I mean, people love it. Like, you know, people got to get, I mean, gonna get, I'm going to get the Errol Otis rules tone when it comes out. Like, are you kidding me? Of course. Right. But I'm also a little invested. So, um, yeah. Okay. So he, you only need that. That's all you need to play. That's well, it. I don't, yeah, I know. I, I This has got like, I've been using this without a problem i might say using it uh yeah but what i want is if i want the other stuff because i know there's stuff where they break things out of multiple tones there's more okay. classes whatever so what there's, would i do to supplement this there's so there's two we have to like kind of go up to the top level and look down and this is why it's confusing <laughs> right and from a branding perspective i get it um this is an important conversation to have i think too if you want to do this kind of stuff um so from the top down i think okay why why don't we look at it from historical perspective okay that, that sounds good sense. okay so originally it was bx essentials and it came out as modular books the whole point was that it was reformatted bx modular so that you would have a class book a spell book a monster book an item book and a core book that was mm -hmm. the product line the idea is if you're playing around the table, the, the referee would have the monster book and the item book, and the players would pass around the spell book and the class book because you never really needed all of it at once, yeah. right? So one box set would cover a table. It's a great idea, I think. What happened was people inevitably said, can you do an omnibus? So he did. And it got re and the whole thing at the same time got renamed Old School Central. So at that point, there was two products that were exactly the same thing, just different formats. One's the modular books, and one's yeah. the tome. They're identical content. It's just different ways of presenting it. At the same time that it became Old School Essentials, he started to put out the second line, which is advanced fantasy, which is taking. It's not a one-to-one -one conversion, but it's taking stuff from AD and D one E and bringing it into OSC. So when I got in, it was much easier because there was not a full advanced fantasy line. There was just BX OSE, and then there was a, an advanced class book and an advanced spell book. Now there's a full advanced line with full advanced tomes. So now someone coming in has to look at three different tomes, two of them named advanced, one of them named classic, and they have to decide um, what is it that they need? The, the simple answer is, and I don't know that if this is presented right or not, or if it's even my place to say if it is or not, but the simple answer is, I think, and I've always advocated, it's just classic fantasy. That's the, the classic fantasy tome is the product, I think. It should be pushed at all times, right? Because that's that's the full game right. in, in a book. Um, the advanced stuff is great. Um, but I think it does make it confusing. And then I think modular, they're going to do a new modular book set. But <laughs> I also heard Gavin in the past say that modular was probably going to weigh, go away because it's less popular. So I don't know what's going on. But um, did that help at all? Or did I just tell you stuff you already knew? Well, I've still got the rules tome. But yeah. what goes with the rules tome? If, if you want to do more stuff, you would get advanced fantasy stuff. So all the advanced fantasy. So it doesn't matter what. So anything that, that's not in here is 
is going to be, I'm going to need the advanced. Yeah, because the modular classic fantasy is identical to the tome. Okay. It's exact same content. So there's no other classic. And so classic fantasy is pure BX. It's identical to BX. Mm -hmm. uh, everything beyond classic fantasy is necrotic gnome original effect. So it's like the AD&D stuff isn't truly AD&D. It's an interpretation of those ideas. Okay. Um, but if you wanted to supplement, you probably wouldn't get the tomes because you already have a chunk of that content. You'd probably get the modular advanced books. So you'd get the modular class book, the modular advanced spell book, the modular monster book, and the modular item. I think they haven't combined into a tome. They do, but the tomes that they provide are the player tome and the referee tome, and those both contain content from the classic fantasy tome. Oh, that is confusing. Right. So the, the, <laughs> because, there's, because with all the advanced content and all the classic fantasy content combined, it's twice the size. It's split into player-facing content and referee-facing content. The consequence of that is, is that the classic DX classes are in the advanced fantasy book because it's an all-encompassing tone. It's like if you play advanced fantasy, you don't also play classic fantasy, right? You're you're essentially going to be choosing whether you're going to play BX or AD&D, quote unquote. Yeah, and that maybe is where the issue is because I'm looking at this as I'm probably not going to play the advanced. I'm just looking right. for how they implement rules and how they implement stuff and do stuff. That's all I care about. Yeah, I'm not going to be running, prob probably not. But maybe I will. Yeah. I don't know. So, okay, so that helps. That helps. So yeah. I think I'll go back to my statement. So I think the newer books, you shouldn't have called tomes. You should have called them something else. Right. I get I get that point of view because I think, I think it gets, I think the confusion started when the advanced fantasy tomes came out. Right, because I think before that it was the main line was classic fantasy and advanced stuff was a supplement that you would add on. That's no longer the case with the tomes because the tomes replace classic fantasy because they're all encompassing. Okay. Um, that, yeah, that I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was just like it was just so maddening. But I guess I mean part of it also comes, you know, like say so you've had the history and. And I, I've, I've got the, the, the uh, it's kind of dumb, but the idea is like, you know, I want to write stuff for it, but I've not played it. So there's a, there's that too. <laughs> eh, I don't, I'm, I'm not so hung up on that the way some people are. But I think, it, I mean, let's, you've played games, Jeff. It's not like, yeah. <laughs> it's not like you don't understand the, the concepts. And I think you've played versions of D&D, &D, right? Have you played any pre-3E D&D? Oh yeah, I mean, pretty much. Uh, I play the. I I get confused with all the terms. So whatever the, the blue book with the dragon, the Earl Otis that came in a box with okay. the keep that's, on the borderlands. That's OSE. That's that's it, yeah. So that's how I started, it. and then yeah, I then went to AD and D. No, as far as that goes, yeah, but I know they got their own little peculiarities. I. And that's the other thing I'm, I got to make sure is that I follow whatever it is the um mm -hmm. sensibilities are without going too yeah. far yeah well the nice thing is uh um i mean you've got the book but also I, I when i write i find the srd 
to be really invaluable. In fact, I probably spend 90% of my time with the SRD up and not the book because they just search it. I want an ant, search an ant, and I look it up, you know. Yeah, I and I do the monster tables. I search monster table and I get it up. In fact, that's where I'm at right now. I don't know that I really need the others, but just the idea is if I ever wanted to, what would I, would I get? Right now, I think the plan is for me for during the Madlands is all the creatures are going to be OSE. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think where the other stuff might come in and I don't think you need it, but it could help inform you. It could help you glimpse into Gavin's philosophies because the other stuff is, is Gavin making decisions about what BX is as opposed to OSC, which is just, it is just BX. That's it. Right. Whereas the advanced stuff and the other necrotic gnome products are either interpretations of other content or original content. So you're seeing kind of, and it, it, you don't, I don't think you're in any obligation to try and ape Gavin's philosophies, you know? Um, but if you, if you were interested in it, I think that's where it would come in handy because you, you would look at, okay, this is his thoughts on, you know, a higher level monster or more spells or whatever. And it could inform your decisions. Um, and that's kind again. of where I'm at. Cause I mean, like right now for Fane, I've the spells, it's still really not fully like, mm-hmm. it's very verbose, the stuff I've got. So that's not a big deal, but I've changed the format. But for the bestiary, I'm definitely going with some weird creatures. Um, mm-hmm. And for those, I think having other examples, you know, mm-hmm. I definitely uh, would work out nice or be helpful. But for the journey to Madlands, the SRD is actually perfect. I really don't necessarily need much more than that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the things where like other content can, can be really helpful because pure BX can be um, pretty bland sometimes like when you're looking through all those monsters and a quarter of them are entirely interchangeable, it's not very helpful as a new designer to, to uh, you know, how do I make my monster uh, stand out when like four of these monsters just have different names, but I don't, they don't, they're not really different. Right. Right. Um, or hobgoblin. Yeah, you know, it's just exactly. Like, but a lot of people have done a, a tremendous amount of stuff with BX um, by just stepping it out a little bit more, you know, and, and adding a little bit more to it. Cause that really only takes a little bit of flavor text and one unique mechanic to make a monster. That's I think all it is. And my, my understanding may be completely wrong cause I'm going by memory, but it does seem like it's to me, it feels like that the, some of the, cool little powers or abilities found in, in BX. I don't remember those being in other bestiaries before. And it seems like they do a lot of makes, they make sure every, I mean, not every, well, maybe it is true. Maybe every creature has something that they do. That's kind of fun. Yeah. I'd have to go back and look at OD and D, but I, I remember the last time I looked at it thinking that there was even less than BX. Yeah. There's not much. Yeah, I don't think there is. Because back then it was like, you got to figure, it was, it was essentially Gary Gygax's notes, right? And he didn't need, 
to know <laughs> how he was going to run a goblin. He knew how he was going to run a right. goblin. And I think he kind of expected informed referees coming from a similar background to him, um, not realizing that the game was going to be a zeitgeist and that there was going to be all kinds of different people coming in that didn't know how to create memorable experiences that didn't rely on mechanics. You know what I mean? Because really old school D&D is very little mechanics. Um, both for classes and monsters. Um, some people find that liberating and some people find that like a real hang up. Um, but I think if you're gonna if you're gonna sell somebody a monster, you gotta you gotta give them something. <laughs> it can't just be goblin, you know. Right, 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 exactly. And that's where I've I here I discussed this before. It just seems like with all those goblinoids, they're just such such small incremental changes yeah that it's just like i don't understand what the point was i think they're doing a better well i say better job i was gonna say i I think fifth edition maybe does a i don't know i shouldn't speak it does seem like later on they try and make cultural differences between them oh for sure i mean by by the time fifth edition comes around the the three goblins are very different but um I don't know how much that plays out mechanically or if it's just presentation, you know, art and flavor text. Um, because really like, what's the difference? Like one has like what pack tactics and another one hits harder. Like oh, mechanics, yes, hard to depending on the system, mechanics are only going to get you so far unless they have something really interesting. Um, but most monsters don't have something really interesting. I think the stuff was implied in the other ones because you could say, you know, for every so many goblins, there would be a percentage chance there could be, you know, uh, a hobgoblin or there could be yeah. uh, whatever. I mean, so there was sort of an implicit in the yeah. design, but they never ever described really what that really meant. Well, that's OD and D in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> half half thoughts putting down on a page. Um. But that's, I think that's the beautiful thing about it. Because like, if you're willing to embrace that, that, that there's, you know, Luke Gehring has been talking a lot about like the interesting things that come from seemingly mundane aspects of OD&D. Like how, if you follow encounter distance, surprise and reaction for every encounter that can create memorable encounters. And it sounds like it wouldn't, right? Because they're so, so procedural, but okay there is this big massive thing and you just kind of see it off in the distance that already has informed the encounter. Now it's random, right? Cause you rolled for it, but that is interesting. And maybe that's more interesting than a pre-scripted encounter because I think what, was, where they failed and I think failed hard is they removed the reaction table. Yeah, absolutely. That's where well, you had that. The reaction table was introduced in BX. Right. Well, yeah, I think that's it's so brilliant. And I, I like the step further even. And I don't know if this is original to Troika or if it's original to advanced uh, fighting fantasy. But uh, Troika has the mine or however it's pronounced where each creature essentially has its own reaction table, which I love. So that goblins have their own reaction table and dragons have their own reaction table. I oh, that makes sense. I, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, they can do that with that system because the stat, there's so much less rules there's way less stats than than uh D, 
So it's fine. Like half the page can be a reaction table, but um, yeah, I think reaction tables are huge. But I think when you add the reaction table to the surprise mm -hmm. and to the distance, yeah, that's where you, the combination actually really shines. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know what? Those, those, those uh, hobgoblins, they may just want to trade. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think, and I, I think a lot has been lost in a lot of ways. A lot's been gained and a lot's been lost. And I think I was talking about this, I think with Logar briefly that I, I think that it's, it's a shame that the classic dungeon game has to an extent been lost. Like it's yeah. still there, but like the original game was a dungeon game. Like that was the point was you, you went down into a dungeon and you got gold and that was a game in itself. Right. And it's now become much more than that. But in the process, that original game has, has been softened, you know, uh, it's less gamey now and it's more open and interpretive, which can be good, but also there's something about that original game that I think is interesting um, in the way that board games can be interesting. Right. Cause it's an experience. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not right. It is right. I, I agree if that's experience that people are wanting and that is, Right, it is a different experience than the other ways of playing. Yeah, and you're right, it is a valid and it's a certain kind of feel, and there's a certain amount of fun to it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think, you know, and I and you're right because there's kind of a point where you know we can talk about reality, we can talk about logic, but yeah. but sometimes you just want to play a game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that first generation understood that. In a lot of ways like i think a lot that first generation was designing scenario games that were less generic you know dnd has become the generic fantasy game but it wasn't a generic game when it first came out it was a specific game boot hill was a specific game and metamorphosis alpha were specific games they weren't designed to be all-encompassing games they were a scenario that you would play but the problem is they had so much fun playing dnd that they kept expanding and expanding and making it more than the original game which is great but um i think there's something to be said for a focused game and that's what you see a lot now in the indie scene with zines is like a zine game will come out and it's a game in itself and it's a very focused thing um i think that can be really interesting yeah i think obviously and they were doing this i think the part of the issue too i think the the, the downfall of the earlier modules is that you know, they were written and a lot of them were written intended to be um, uh, tournament play. Mm -hmm. They weren't really weren't written for like at the table kind of play. And I don't know that Gary, maybe he never saw the difference. Maybe to him, every game is a term. I don't know. I can't, right. I can't say, but it's just like, that's where I think the failing was is this a lot of times just like, this just seems weird. You know, we played on right. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where, like, you always you would hear people say, like, "Oh, actually, Tomb of Horrors is terrible." It's like, I guess if like you're treating it like a normal module, right? Of course it is. But if you treat it as a what what is now called a funnel or like a meat grinder, and it's a very specific thing with expectations that are set, then it's perfectly fun. You just can't go in and drop it in the middle of a campaign and expect. Have a right session, right? Because that was the never the intent of it, right? Exactly. It was never meant that way. Um, it was to see who could get the farthest, and then they would at the end of the at the end of the convention they would get the prize. 
Exactly. And I think that's a valid and fun way of playing the game. It's, and I, I, I think it's interesting too. Um, so, but yeah, I definitely don't, I think, I think early on, well, I think early on in terms of that stuff, nobody knew what to do, right? Like I, you, early on, they just assumed that nobody would buy anything but OD and D. And then they kept coming out with stuff and people kept buying it, you know? And then it became clear that adventures could have a lot of profit in them. So with the interview with Logar, were you the one that said you played with the, I can't remember who said this, because one of you said that you, you found a first edition guy, was it you? Yeah. That he didn't, he just, but you never went through a dungeon. We did, yeah, we did one dungeon. It was a straight yeah. line. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I don't know that I'm a, I don't know if I'm a fan of dungeons or not. I think, I don't, mm. I think, I don't play a lot of D and D anymore style games. I don't. I'm. I don't know why. I don't know why I don't. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know if it's because. I think the problem I've had is I think most of the, I, even though people love them, I think most of those TSR games modules, I just fundamentally just don't really like especially mm-hmm. when they get too wackadoodle or there's too many gotchas you know it's it's like the gary yeah. gygax like this this door the way you find it it's actually been plastered over you know it's like like nobody's gonna like yeah you having people chip plaster scraping right. walls the entire way is that what you're expecting it's like i think that kind of weirdness turned me off and i think if probably if they were a little and i think what happened is uh, later on when i wasn't playing them i think they probably did a better job with some of the dungeons as far as not make them as much a gotcha and make them maybe more of an experience like maybe second edition maybe i don't know um yeah i haven't played a lot of mo- classic modules to be honest but i've always heard from people that the bx modules are actually way better than the ad and d modules like yeah because i think they had more freedom they weren't necessarily under Gary's thumb at that point because he was shepherding the flagship line, <laughs> even though he wrote keep on the borderlands, but still like, I think, you know, like a lot of the cook and Moldvay stuff uh, to my understanding is, is really good. Um, so, but I don't know. I, I mean, a lot of people telling me that played it in the seventies and eighties. So it could be nostalgia too. I don't really know. People still play Keeper of the Borderlands a lot, and that's a Gary dungeon. It still gets played a lot to this day. Well, um, I think it's a good example. I think <clears> the <throat> only problem with it is that all the caves are too close together, which you can fix. Yeah. If you spread yeah, those out, that's fixable. Yeah. Yeah. They're it's they're fun. I mean, yeah. there's there's something interesting with each one. Like there's one where there's, I think, uh these I don't know if it's kobolds, and their layers right next to an ogre. Yeah. And they will have they have a bag of gold, and if they certain situations arise, they find out you're you're attacking them. Somebody will run with that bag of gold, throw it at the ogre, and he'll go fight for them. Yeah, like that's kind of cool. You know what I mean? No, I I I you know I think I think Gary's stuff is very what whatever you think about the man. I, I'm I'm hesitant to throw. As 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 Gygaxian and troublesome the actual game content can be, I'm I'm hesitant to throw the game content out 
with the problematic game content, not socially speaking, but mechanically speaking. Oh, like, right. I, you know, I like, I, I, whatever you think about his views on biology, whatever, like there's separate discussions to be had about whether the game is good at all. Uh, and some of that, like, I know his taste, but some of that it's like, okay, yeah, is AD&D too much? I think so. Uh, is it convoluted? I think so. But there's still interesting things going on in, in the game, in, in, in OD&D, and in, in some of the modules that Gary wrote. Like, I think that those classic series that he wrote are maybe not necessarily f- perfect for running by today's standards, but are certainly interesting and introduced a lot of concepts that stay with us to this day. Like, people are still doing Underdark Drow stuff. You know, um, I think if you were if the internet was to get nuked, right, and it just ceased to exist, <laughs> I think it would be. I think the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide is probably the best of any RPG material ever put out. I mean, as far as you could sit and pull something open and read something interesting, you could read about diseases, right? You could read about gemstones, you could read about hiring woodworkers for your castle i mean you know it's definitely um i think it's a very fun book i think the problem that people get is they go into it looking at it with today's standards where they expect it to be a literal dungeon master's guide and it's other than like character creation rules i don't think there's anything else and i haven't read that entire book cover to cover so i might be entirely wrong but my interpretation is other than the, the character creation rules, which are for some reason in the Dungeon Master's Guide, I don't think there's anything else you need in that book no. to play the game. And that's very interesting, right? Because nowadays, and this has changed a little bit with 5th edition, like people argue about whether the 5th edition, I've gotten in arguments about whether the 5th edition book is a true core book because I don't think there's anything in there that you actually need to play the game. Oh, for the, for the Dungeon Master's Guide? No, you don't need it at all. But I think in older in 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 between sessions, uh, uh, in between editions, like two through third and maybe fourth, you did need the DMG to some extent, and yeah. it was expected that it would guide you literally as a as a dungeon master. Whereas first edition, that's not the purpose of it. It's literally just almost everything left over in Gary's brain <laughs> from the first two books. That doesn't fit in anywhere else, but it's very, as you said, it's very interesting, and there's some golden things in there. Um, I think the problem too is, you know, for you young kids, you whippersnappers, <laughs> when you're 12 years old and there is nothing on TV, there is no right. internet, you can get with a piece of graph paper and you can draw out a castle and calculate its costs. Yeah. And blow a whole afternoon getting lost in that kind of activity. Yeah. You know, it's there's just, definitely everything has changed in that regard, though, because people just don't have even young kids nowadays don't have the kind of time that existed. Like, I'm I am old enough to remember, believe it or not, Jeff, analog days. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember being bored. Yeah. Um, and I remember the type of immersion I could give to a subject. Like, I, I could only get into third edition when I was like 12 to 16. That was the only time in my life right. where I was ever going to get so into something that I was going to learn 
the rules or something like that. Um, now I don't have the time or the bandwidth for it. I, I agree. Um, and I don't know that young people do to the same extent either because they now have access to tremendous amounts of information and entertainment. Uh, that there's a serious divide, you know, culturally between people who were born before the internet um, and people who were born after the internet. And it's an entirely oh, yeah. different world, entirely different. And I think that has bled into RPGs. The nature of RPGs are different and people aren't going to sit down and learn something like AD&D 1E uh, by heart and go all in and, and, you know, spend every day playing, you know, the way that kids would in the 70s and 80s and play it during lunch and go home and play it for seven oh, yeah. hours. It doesn't exist anymore. That, that world is gone um, for better or worse. I don't know. It's not my place to say whether that's good or bad, but AD&D, the Gygax era, that was definitely of its time for sure. Um, and I, I, I find it interesting just um, from, uh, I don't want to say nostalgic or like a, almost like a romantic point of view. Like I find that, I find the 70s era of RPGs really very fascinating to me. Um, probably because I wasn't there. <laughs> I think, I think, I think what's kind of sad, well, I'm not sad, but so I don't think my experience with, I think most of my experience was really turning into the 80s mostly. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of, I guess, if other than, I guess there's Traveler, there's D&D, there's Tecumel. There was oh, villains and villains and vigilantes was a thing at the time, mm-hmm. uh, but there was also some other people doing some odd, weird. I think on the California uh, of the coast, I think their D and D started looking more like weird science and less of medieval yeah. fantasy. So I think yeah. there's a lot of stuff I kind of missed out on. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Like I think even though '80s, very early '80s was kind of like the the peak D and D. It's very different than 70s D&D, I think. If you played in the mid-70s, you were playing, you were having a very different experience, I think. Because it was less set in stone. Right. There was less less authorial authority. Like, if you played before Gygax wrote AD&D, there was no, like, this is the correct D&D. You know, that was very much an effort for, I think, Gygax to reconsolidate after it had gotten out there. And he started to see people making versions of it he didn't actually like, you know? Um, so by the time you would have played, that attempt to create authority would have already happened, you know? Well, but I think all the games uh, started increasing in complexity. Yeah. Like Space Opera, completely complicated game. I think Boot Hill, you know, fairly complicated. I mean, they definitely, by the time those things started coming out, they the roots of the earlier simpler BX style was gone. And there was a lot, the rules were much more uh, becoming more complicated, not as bad as it would be. I think in the nineties where it just went out right. of control. It well, that, like, it almost became like, a, to my understanding. And again, I was, I was pretty young at the time, but it was almost like an arms race where like the bigger and crunchier the book was, the more valuable it was. And it took something like the crash 
and a philosophical reset to swing the pendulum yes. back the other direction, right? Because like you had like palladium and all these other things that were, I, you know, I'm not knocking them, but I don't think they would survive now as new products. No, I mean, and I think even stuff like, you know, I mentioned before, like, um, like Moral Project, it's just like, this is insane. Like, <laughs> I, 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 this is insane. Like, right. you have to be really into guns, really yeah. to be figuring and calculating shock. And it's just, I, yeah. Well, know, I think that's right now what you're seeing a lot of people is, stripping out the fun parts of traveler and leaving all you know <laughs> oh yeah the space calculations in the dot in the in the trash bin because there's still interesting stuff there but nobody wants to spend four hours figuring out the trajectory of fire or whatever well we um, we actually did in high school pull our calculators <laughs> and did vectors oh my god <laughs> that's that's true nerd that's yeah I mean, but we, I don't have time for that now. Um, no. But anyway. There's probably a program that would do it for you, but then you're on the verge of video games at that point. Yeah, it is. I think like, I think the true, this is why I think we're really, I mean, in a renaissance is like, I've never played Twilight 2000 before. Mm -hmm. But from what I heard, mechanics are not great and it's heavy on the gun porn. Mm -hmm. And it's just, and I've read through some of the adventures and they just appear to be more just excuses to, to have shootouts. Sure. So then Freely gets a hold of it, which yeah. I've not played yet, but they actually just like made the rules, I think, a whole lot more um, um, approachable. Okay. And but you still can have the gun porn, you can still have all the vehicles, you can have your claymores, but you're not getting into this insane level of of detail. But it's still that there is still detail there for a you can play it as a war game if you mm -hmm. want. I mean, but it's not. So I think we've they've learned through over the years to just kind of understand how to reapply mechanics in a way that you can still give an experience of things not being overly simplistic, but yet also mm -hmm. not overly uh, convoluted to, to approach. Yeah. Well, they're certainly the ones to, to possibly pull it out. Now, they I don't know a lot about them. But they, they're Mutant Year Zero, aren't they? Yes. So did they originally write that or did they buy it? No. That's an old game, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Is that what all of their stuff is based on or is that just something else entirely? Everything is, yeah, I would say pretty much everything is, I don't know about some some barium, but, but yeah, yeah, pretty much everything is based on a variation now the twilight 2000 is probably the furthest out okay so the system you know it's just it's still stat skill you you combine them you roll sixes count successes mm -hmm. and um and then generally there's a re-roll and the re-roll mechanic is usually where something bad can happen yeah so they simplified it with uh they, they i don't want to say simplified oh. it there's less dice rolling in Twilight 2000, mm. but it kind of does a lot of neat stuff. So you can kind of also figure out your, your firearm misfires or whatever, it, whatever the case may be. It's interesting to me that like they can kind of, I don't want to say they get, get away with it, but the standards are different for like them 
in Chaosium versus Hasbro. And obviously they're two they're different things, but it's like Free League can have a single system, right? And come out with all these different games based on it. Chaosium can have a single system come out with all these different games on it. But if if Hasbro was to just use D&D mechanics, like the way they did in the 3E era to make spin off different games, people would complain about it, right? But obviously I think that Hasbro's held the different standards for a good reason, but I think it's that's interesting to me, you know. Well, the thing is is what what is different where I think the idea with 3.5 or 3.0 was one system to rule them all. Yeah. Uh free league they're not not everything is directly some things you can kind of intermingle, but they definitely like the like the for what I understand, I've not played Mutant or I've not played um Tales from the Loop. Okay. But, but the way they do, you can't just like play a mutant a year from loop character right. and put him into mutant years. It just will not work. I mean, it's they yeah. definitely jiggered stuff. I yeah, I, I think and I think that makes total sense. I just mean that like I'm almost surprised that people don't complain that they don't make a whole new system for every product. You know what I mean? Because there are a lot of people who feel that um a lot of the hardcore systems matters people feel that mechanics are really informative right well um, i will say that the i would say that for my limited play i think there is more compatibility with chaosium stuff yeah than there is with the free league stuff now i could see that but there's not that much difference but as far as like if you look just strictly at skill mm-hmm the, the simplest mechanics, those are pretty much true throughout, but it's the way stress is handled, the way other aspects do make it pretty unique. But, but yeah, it's, but the thing is, it's still, I will say that all of them, there is still, when I say all of them, Mutant Year Zero, I would say Mutant Year Zero, Coriolis, and Alien. Mm-hmm. They still all have a similar, and I'd say even Forbidden Lands, they still all kind of have the same kind of feel about them that's pretty universal and the mechanics are different. So right. you're not really getting a large ex, you know, change in experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, they're, but they are, um, but there is a certain feel that, I mean, yeah, it's definitely... Um, I think if you like that one system, you like them all and you kind of get the vibe and the thing they're going for, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I'm not, and I'm not trying to knock that either. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just find it interesting. Um, but you're not going to be playing, but see, the thing is with the systems is, you know, the Coriolis, the Mutant Year Zero and the, and the Alien, they're all still kind of the same vibe. You're not playing superhero crazy stuff and you're not playing right. D&D stuff either. I mean, it's, it's usually, a, I don't want to say realistic, but it's it's a little more brutal system. Right. And there's probably some tweaks you can do, but it's it, they're not changing. It's not like you're not doing wildly different things. It's not like, it's kind of like I'd say with uh, Powered by the Apocalypse. Okay. They can all do different things and they can do wildly right. different things, but the, it's they still have a certain feel about them. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know how long we talked, Dan. I think it's uh 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a good one. <laughs> we better we better cut it short because uh, I I got work tomorrow. <laughs> so, Same. <laughs> well, you're you're in the future too, so you got to yeah. deal with that. Yes, I got I and I still have things to do before going to sleep. So oh well, yeah. I'll, I'll yeah, I'll let you go. Uh, we'll do this again. <laughs> Definitely, I appreciate uh, you bringing me on. It was a lot of fun. Well, you know, I've been wanting to have you on, and you know, uh, I was pretty excited with the whole um, with the planner compass, uh, what you guys are doing. So I mean, you. obviously, you're, you're a great group of people. Want to stay successful. You. I just uh, I'm glad to get, was able to get you on. Just life events were just yeah well, i get it <laughs> like, we it. all we all are either just got through some weird life events are in weird life events or will be going into some weird life events so yes definitely okay well you take care dan and uh, you too. Talk, talk to you later all right bye